Good morning, how are y'all doing? Good. We're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. That's what we'll be studying for uh, the next probably few months. Um, So why don't we go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. We're starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you are a God who loves us, who cares for us, who is our provider, Lord. You are the Lord God provider. Every single thing, Lord, that we need is available to us from you, God. You are such a good God. We thank you, Lord, for lavishing us with your mercy and your grace, God. We ask, God, today that the pulpits across this country, across this world, will be filled with the word of God and would go forth in truth, that you would bless the churches, God, to continue to be faithful to preach the word, Lord. I pray for uh, my fellow pastors that they would be faithful to preach what your word says, Lord, and nothing else. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Belize that you'd continue to be with them, continue to bless them, Lord, continue to have your face shine upon them, continue to have them thrive and flourish, God, as they seek you, as they continue to run after you, Lord. May they persevere in their faith, God, and may the same be true of us. May we persevere and put our hand to the plow and not look back, God. May you do this all for your glory, we ask with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the book of Colossians, and we'll be looking at it for the next uh, couple months, as I said, at least. Um, Colossae was a small town about 80 miles from Ephesus, uh, situated in uh, Asia, or Asia Minor, if you want to call it. And it really came into being during Paul's two-year ministry at Ephesus. He doesn't specifically mention the planting of the church at Colossae, but he does say that all who lived in the province of Asia, which included that city, heard the word of the Lord, Acts 19, verse 10. Now, when you think about the different books in the New Testament, almost every single one of them has a primary focus, um, especially when you're looking at, hey, what, what's the theme or the message that is trying to be communicated? Think of uh, Romans, like the theme or the primary message in Romans, justification by faith. When you think about Ephesians, It's about the mystery of Christ and the church. Philippians, it's the joy which Christ brings, right? So there's like a primary theme for each book. So what's the primary theme when we get to the book of Colossians? It is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. It is the absolute supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And we will learn, and maybe have learned, that Jesus is the head of 
over all creation. Not only is he head over all creation, he is the head over the church. One theologian said it like this, there is no book in the New Testament, including John's Gospel, which presents such a comprehensive picture of the fullness of Christ. Accordingly, there is no better, there's no writing better equipped to draw us upward than the book of Colossians. So Christ is supreme. As we're reading it and reading it, it's only four chapters, right? Y'all should read it at least once a week. Okay, I, I didn't count how many verses yet, uh, but it's, it's probably around 120, something like that, maybe even less. That's really not that much. There's uh, two chapters in Luke, and, and you've already got all four chapters in, in Colossians and probably then some, okay? So there's about 30 verses a chapter, maybe a little bit less, four chapters. I'll work that into your quiet times. It's, you're going to get much more out of it and see much more connections <clears throat> as we're going through it. So Christ is the supreme. He is the head over all creation. He is the head over the church. And brothers and sisters, he is seated next to the Father. Think of what he said in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, that sounds like he's in charge to me, right? All authority, right? Not some authority. All authority has been given to him. So he is in charge. Now, what prompts Paul's letter? Well, it's a report that comes to Paul from Epaphras. If we look at verse 4, we can see that. In verse 4, it says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul did not know most of the Colossians. He had not met them. And if you look at, at verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, we can see that. For you, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So most, if not all, the Colossians had not seen Paul uh, in the flesh. We can see that from verse 1 in chapter 2. We see it here since we heard of your faith, right? So they, he heard about it, um, but he hadn't witnessed it firsthand. And then in verse 7, it says, just as you learned it, what is it, learned it? Well, about God's grace, about the gospel, about salvation, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So Epaphras comes to Paul with a report about how things are going in the Colossian church. And this ends up prompting the letter that Paul writes. Here's the thing. Paul hears that issues are arising and threatening the church. Wolves are encroaching. And wherever a good work is, wherever a good work of God is going on, wolves will try to sneak in and disrupt it, even destroy it. And what do wolves eat? Sheep, right? Little lambs. That's us. They attack suddenly, they attack without notice, and when you least expect it. And everyone hearing me right now is like, oh, that's never going to happen to me. That's not going to happen to me. Well, wolves attack sheep. And if you're a believer, you're a sheep. All right? It's not an insult. Sometimes it could be, but it's not an insult. You're part of God's, God's uh, flock, Right? So they attack. It's vicious. I mean, you ever watch the Nature Channel? You know, like wild animals, like when they attack their prey, do they like come up to it and just like knock it out or something? You know, they're like a, an, you know, some kind of nice, nice killing or something like. And then they take out their utensils, you know, and they're like gonna cut it up real. 
No, it's vicious. Right? I mean, it's pretty gory. <clears throat> so it's brutal. That's how the wolves attack. Here's the thing. When's the best time to attack, to, to act against a wolf? Is it while he's attacking or after he, he attacks? Okay, it's a trick question. It's before he attacks. That's right. Some of you got it. <clears throat> so Paul sees that the wolves are encroaching, so he writes this letter to help establish the Colossians in their faith and to warn them up against the oncoming onslaught of these wolves. He's telling them to be prepared and stay prepared. Some of the things that he's going to be writing uh, against and some of the things that the Colossians are battling that we'll see in the coming weeks um, are a couple different types of worldviews or belief systems. One is Gnosticism, like a secret knowledge. It kind of like blended Christianity with, with um, elements of Greek thought. There is also angel worship that was uh, potentially seeping in and was blended with Jewish mysticism. There is also just a general syncretism, which is a blending of ideologies and views from various religions and worldviews. All those things are pressing in on the Colossians. Paul wants to write to them, to encourage them, to help establish them in their faith. Listen, every church needs a biblical foundation and a biblical grounding. Every single local church. So you build the church on sand, what happens to it? It's going to sink, right? It's going to sink. You build the church on sand, it sinks. What happens when you build the church on the rock? It stands, all right? <clears throat> so when we talk about, um, like, what is the heart here at Liberty, you know, the vision that Liberty has is we want to show you how to build your faith and help establish it on the rock, which is Christ. So we have three key words here, and this is a review for some of you, but it's been a little bit, but there's three key words that encapsulate the vision of liberty. Y'all remember what they are? You got one of them. You got two of them. Flourish, go, and belong, all right? <clears throat> so let's just talk about each of those uh, momentarily. Belong. That's the key word, and then there's a little phrase that goes with it, belong to the body of Christ. When I say belong to the body of Christ, it first and foremost, above all, when I'm talking about belonging to the body of Christ, it's not talking about belonging to a local church. That's like the second part. But I'm talking about belonging basically to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, then you do belong to the body of Christ. Remember I just talked about, he's not just the head over all creation, but he's the head over what? The church. We're going to see that about the middle of Colossians chapter 1, it picks up talking about Christ being the head, right? Over both. But if you are with Jesus, if you belong to him, then you're part of the body, right? He's the head and, and you, have, you play one of those parts. So belong to the body of Christ. Look at uh, Colossians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15. Keep your place in Colossians because we'll be coming back. But 1 Corinthians 15, we can see this. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians. In verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, it starts out, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, 
those who belong to Christ. See, you've got to belong to Christ. Okay? Uh, here, Paul makes reference to Adam. As in Adam, all die. Okay? All of us are born in Adam. Why? Because he's, he's our progenitor. He's the first one. When he messed up, he messed it up for all of us. Okay? And every person ever born can trace their lineage, if they could possibly, all the way back to Adam. Right? So, in Adam, all die. If you're, if you're just in Adam, if you're just part of the human race, you have a, a physical death that will occur, but also a spiritual death that will occur. But then what does he say? So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So if you're in Christ, you have life. In Adam, death. In Christ, you have life. So each to his, his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So if you belong to Christ, you have the life. If you don't belong to Christ, you don't have the life. The scriptures are very clear about that. So if you're not sure about that, all you have to do is start reading in, in the New Testament, and you're going to see, in Christ, you have life. Apart from Christ, no life. So I encourage you, if you don't have Christ, to trust him today, to get Christ. So belong to Jesus. But also kind of the second part of that is belonging to the body of Christ in terms of the local body. Why? Because that is how God set up his church. For there to be members in the church, right? Imagine if there was churches and nobody went to them. That would be weird. <clears throat> right? That, but sometimes that's how people are. But we're supposed to belong first to Jesus and be a part of the body of Christ with him as the head, but then also at, to the local body. Why? Because, well, it's a sermon in itself, but for numerous reasons. For the giftings we've been given, so we can come and worship the Lord, so we can be with the brothers and sisters and be encouraged in our faith, so we can encourage them, so we can be built up, so we can help others be built up, and on and on and on and on. But if we belong to Jesus, that means we are his bride. And the bride belongs to Jesus. So belonging looks like being part of the family of God, but also to the local body of Christ. Even when you read through the scriptures over and over and over and over and over, over and over, it's unfortunate because in the English language, the word you, Y-O-U, can mean singular or plural. Okay? Now, if, you, if you're a King James person, then it's, it's, it's the versus ye, right? And it's actually clear if it's singular or plural. But in English, when we say you, now most of us say something like you all or y'all or something like that. Okay, we've, we've started to morph the language a little bit. But when you're reading in the scriptures and it says you, it's not always clear if he's talking to one person or many persons. But oftentimes, oftentimes, oftentimes that you is in the plural. Even, even some time ago I was reading and I was like, oh, I wonder if that's in the singular or the plural. It looks like it's probably in the singular. No, but it's in the plural. But what's the idea behind that? Is that, like, one, you're hearing the word and it's applying to us. Like, if the word's being preached and I say you, well, sure, I mean you and you and you and you and you, but I also mean you. Like, it's, it's everyone. <clears throat> but the idea also is that there's a body life that occurs there's a body life that occurs, and you're part of the body. So there's, you should be a part of the life of the body. Flourishing, growing, learning, discipling, witnessing, 
all of those things. So this belong, that's part of being built on the rock. People want to be built on the rock. People want to stand on the rock. You know, we, there's that song on Christ the solid rock I stand, right? All other ground, sinking sand. So this is part of being built on the rock. But there's also the part of flourish. Belong, flourish. Flourish as disciples. Look at John 15. Jesus starts out John 15 in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And let me just, can I just make a, an observation here? It's, it's very interesting because a lot of times, you, you, even this passage, a lot of times the focus is, and I'm going to make that part of the focus, is, is being in Christ, right? But notice when Jesus um, starts out, he says he's the true vine, but he, but he also feels it very important that his father is the vine dresser. The Father and the Son, I mean, they're, they're in lockstep. They're hand in hand, right? And the Spirit is there too. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, verse 2, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, then it may be, bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What can we do apart from Christ? Nothing. So I, I want to see everyone here grow. I want to see everyone flourish as disciples. I want to see them, uh, each of us, you, me, all of us, I want to see us flourishing in our faith as believers. And here's the thing. With birth comes growth. With birth comes growth. So if you're born again, then there will be growth. You know, when a baby is born, what happens when, 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 it, when it stops growing? Like everyone's freaking out, right? The mom's freaking out, the dad's freaking out, the doctors are freaking out, the nurses are freaking out. Like everyone's freaking out. <clears throat> Why? Because something's wrong. Babies are supposed to grow. And I remember one of our kids in the first couple of years of, of their life for about like six to 12 months, they didn't gain any weight. That's very concerning for a parent. So we were seeing all sorts of doctors and everyone we knew was concerned. Why? Because with birth comes growth. So if you are a born again believer, if you're claiming the name of Christ, growth will be a part of it. So flourish as disciples. And I'm talking about flourishing in the church. I'm talking about flourishing in the home. I'm talking about flourishing in the workplace. How does the world flourish? Well, money, possessions, power, prestige, right? That's how the world flourishes. But as believers, God wants us to flourish as his children. As his children. So we flourish as disciples. And the focus on our growth, it's not financial, it's an accumulation of possessions. No, we're flourishing in our faith. It's growing in our faith. Growing in our relationship with the triune God. Growing in our sanctification. Becoming more like Jesus. This is key to being built on the rock. Finally, 
The third one, go. Belong, flourish, go. And it's go in service and mission. What does that mean? Well, I mean, picture for a minute someone who wants to be a scuba diver. Tons of training involved, right? They go through, they get all the training, they have all the certification, and what do they do? They put on all their gear and fill up their bathtub with four inches of water and go sit in it and act like they're scuba diving. I mean, that's kind of silly. But that's sometimes what believers do. We've been greatly, greatly gifted. God says that he gives gifts to his children, and he gives spiritual gifts to his children. If you're, if you're a believer, you have at least one spiritual gift that God has given to you to minister to others. But sometimes we can have all, all, God's blessed us, God's blessed all of us with different talents and treasures, all sorts of different things, and sometimes what do we do? We end up just climbing into that bathtub, sitting in four inches of water, even though we're, we're greatly blessed. Okay, we can go way beyond the bathtub. Now, when you're a little baby, you don't even put the baby in the bathtub. You put it like in the sink if you're going to give it a little bath, right? Once it starts getting a little older, you put it in the bathtub. <clears throat> but if you're like 45 years old <clears throat> and you're just sitting in four inches of water in the bathtub, you either have an injury or something's wrong. Okay? Now, I understand the older you get, maybe you're back in the bathtub, okay? <clears throat> and we'll be there for you. But go in service and mission. So we're taking the training that we've been given, we're taking the flourishing that God wants us to have, and then we're taking it and we're going. In service and mission. What's the service part? Well, that's ministering to people's needs. You know, in, in about, I don't know, whatever it is, eight, ten months or something, we're going to be heading to Belize. I hope all of y'all are coming with us. We're heading to Belize. Our church is going down there, and we do all sorts of stuff down there. If you can think of something that is biblical, we have done it or will do it. We've built houses. We've fed the, uh, the hungry. We've clothed the homeless. We've gone door to door, knocking on people's doors, sharing the gospel. Um, we've done training for kids in schools for their education. We've done VBS. We've done a whole lot of stuff. But the service part, that's like the feeding the hungry. That's helping with, with school tutoring. That's like building a home. That's service. You're serving others. But the mission because we're going there with a mission. And what's the mission? That's the gospel. And a lot of times, you know, my heart, um, because I've led other churches on their, on, their, on their mission trips, and the last thing I want to do is just go and, do, and just only do service. Just only build a house. That house is going to fall over that we built someday. It's going to rot away, okay? That food that we give I mean, has already been eaten. The training that we've done with those kids, well, they're at the next level, and they need more training, okay? But there's something that won't ever dissipate or disappear, and that's the truth of the gospel in those people's lives. And one day, those people are going to end up dying, just like us. So all the food in the world that they could possibly stockpile, that we could possibly bring to them, yes, that's great for this life, but what about the next life? So if we're just doing, helping them with what I could even call it like temporary needs, that might be a temporary need for the rest of their life, but it's a temporary need because you got a life beyond this life, right? And that's what we want to make sure they're prepared for. So we're not just going in service doing those things, which is very much needed and we're called to do that, but you got to have the gospel with you. It'd be like going into a place where there's um, 
just famine and starvation left and right. It hasn't rained in, in years, and all we do is bring bread. Well, guess what? You have to have water, too, right? You have to have the water. So the, the service is just like going and showing up with the bread when people are dying of dehydration. They have to have the water, okay? They have to have the true water, the water of life. So that's what we're talking about when we're saying we're going in service and mission. This is integral to being built on the rock. And they tie together what you see with these three words, belong, flourish, go. They tie together, they're linked together. So as you belong, you're flourishing. And as you flourish, you go. They work hand in hand together. So here's, here's the question. How are we doing in, in the battle that we're in? You know, vicious wolves everywhere. If we're just munching on grass, not being aware or careful, we're going to get picked off. We'll get attacked. We won't be ready for it. Now notice something about Paul's attitude. Because he's concerned for them. That's in part what prompts the letter. If you go back to Colossians, he's concerned for them. <clears throat> but every single one of his letters that he addresses to a specific church, he finds something praiseworthy to talk and compliment them about. Go back to Colossians 1. What's he, and almost every letter begins after the introduction of himself in some, in some um, greetings. He says, Verse 3, we always thank God. I mean, he, he starts almost every letter like that. We always thank God. We always thank God, right? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, and here's what he's thankful for. Here's what he's complimenting them on. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So he's complimenting them for their faith and for their love for all the saints. Here's the thing. Paul's just not being like using complimentary words, just kind of like building them up a little bit just because he's about to you know, hit him with something hard. No, I mean, he, he earnestly means that. When you read through his letters, some letters it's maybe uh, clearer than others, but you read through some of his letters, like, he loved these people. And the Colossians, he hadn't even met face to face. Yet he loved them. He loved them. It, I mean, I, in, in a sense, <clears throat> not a direct correlation, but, you know, some of you, have never met um, the, the people of uh, Belize, the Belizeans that we've done ministry with for many, many, many years, but you've shown your love, one, by praying for them, but two, especially during the lockdown, by giving of your, your finances to help them out. You know, love is shown in tangible ways, and you guys showed that you really cared about those people, some of whom you've never met. Well, that, I mean, you're putting, you're putting action, putting into action the words that you, that you say. It's interesting, um, we were talking at Life Group, because we're going through the book on giving, uh, we're talking at Life Group about just the, the giving of believers and what percent is, is it, where it's at, and how it's, you know, it's like, I think it's like 4 to 5% at best when they, when they survey it. Um, and so we were kind of talking about that, but, but someone, you know, chimed in, but believers overall are some of the most generous people. And that is totally true. And it was good for us to hear that, as we were discussing giving and, and maybe some of the areas where the church and people in the church are falling, uh, falling short, is believe it. Because here's the thing, when they do surveys, <clears throat> it's true that Christians in America outshine every other 
group when it comes to giving. But not only that, if you, if you dive down and dig down a little more, when, when they do the survey results and they look at it and they, they check it against the hard facts, it's not just Christians, it's actually Protestant Christians. And it's not just Protestant Christians, it's actually conservative Protestant Christians that are by far the most generous with their finances when it comes to helping out. I'm talking like, I mean, it's crazy when you look at some of the stats. I don't have them here in front of me, but we're talking like crazy amounts of money that people like y'all and some of y'all give. And guess what? That impacts the kingdom for now and for eternity. Just like we're learning, right? Lay up, where are we supposed to lay up our treasure? In heaven, right? So we're, it's like you're paying it on ahead. <clears throat> so how are we doing in the battle when wolves are, are circling around, when they, they look like they're getting ready to attack? What's our approach? Well, here Paul is setting the stage for them. And notice what he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now grace was the Greek greeting. Now Paul actually changes the, the normal Greek greeting just a little bit. Um, because he actually wants to, it's, it's the same, same word, but he just changes it just a tiny bit because he actually wants to emphasize the key word, grace. So really, um, it, just, it literally says how it's translated here, grace to you. So he's emphasizing grace, so he changes the Greek wording just a bit just to make it like, hey, singular grace. Well, what, what's singular grace? Well, it's God's grace, and that's what we see. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Where does the grace come from? The Father. Where does the peace come from? The Father. Peace was the Hebrew greeting. You probably heard sometimes, I've even heard people say to me, shalom, right? Well, that's the Hebrew word um, for peace. And it simply, uh, it, meant, it meant more than simply the absence of trouble, but it meant well-being, which springs from a sense of the presence of God. And here's the thing, if you looked at all the instances of shalom in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, two-thirds of those instances of, of peace result because of the presence of God. Think about that. God's presence is there, peace results. So when the Jews used it, they really had the idea of the coming Messiah who would usher in this age of peace. Well, I mean, they were right, right? Wrong on the person, <clears throat> but right in the, in the theology there. Why? Because when Jesus comes, what will he fully usher in? God's kingdom, right? True peace. So here's the thing. You need the grace and you need the peace, but you need the grace before you get the peace. Why? Because if you don't have God's grace, you can't have God's peace. If you don't have God's grace, you can't have his peace. Okay? If you want to be walking with God in peace, you want to be walking in his presence, you want to be walking in fullness of joy, guess what? You have to be one of his, which means you need his grace. It comes into your life, right? By How are we saved? By grace, through faith. God pours out his grace upon us through the instrument of faith, which results in our salvation. That brings peace. How many people I've talked to, I can't even count, <clears throat> that get saved later in their life, 
and they will talk about how things are different, but when you really start asking questions how things are different, yeah, sure, in their lifestyle, absolutely, that's, that definitely needs to be there. But just, in, it's like there's a sense of peace. Peace that they didn't have before. Now, <clears throat> that doesn't mean there's not stress in life. That doesn't mean there's not struggles. That doesn't mean there's not bad days. But when you have the peace of God, it surpasses what? All understanding. So you can be in those super stressful situations. You can be dealing with some of the toughest situations, and yet you can still have the peace of God. It's a beautiful thing. But you've got to have the grace first. Grace and peace. Where do they both come from? God our Father. He is the one that gives us the grace. He is the one that gives us the peace. So look at Ephesians 5. Let me just say this while you're turning there. Many seek peace, but they don't find it. Why? Because they pursue it apart from Christ. Many seek peace and think they find it, but it's a faux peace. It's a fake peace. Why? Because they've found it apart from Christ. Many things in this world can maybe satisfy you temporarily. They can bring you a sense of, of peace, but it's not true peace. It's not God's peace. It's not God's presence. So only real peace is found in the presence of Christ. And Jesus is our one and only. Here's what he says in Ephesians 5 to us. He's talking to the husbands here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I mean, that's God's view of the church here. That's Christ's view. Why did he come? Well, we see it right here. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is the belonging to Christ. You belong to Christ. You belong to the church. If you belong to the true church, you belong to Christ. So this is God's view of the church, without spot or wrinkle. And sometimes you're like, man, I look at, I look at my church, I see spots and wrinkles everywhere. Right? I'm not talking about you old people here, okay? <clears throat> Talking about spiritual spots and wrinkles. Well, yes, that's true. But sometimes <clears throat> we can end up with such like a negative view and we're always harping on ourselves and others that we can really miss some of the beautiful pictures that the Lord gives us in scriptures about ourselves and about his church. And this is one of them. And some of you that kind of lean towards more of the negative side, you probably need to camp on these verses for a little bit and read them over and over. Because this is a beautiful picture that we're given. That he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Man, isn't that, isn't that beautiful? What an amazing description. So yes, there's, there's spots and wrinkles, how does God view us? How does God view the church? Yeah, is our sin there? Sure. But how is he viewing us? Think of that. We're justified. 
We've been justified, bought by the blood of the Lamb. And he has sanctifying us, is sanctifying us, and one, one day we will have a, a final sanctification, if you will. We're all in the process of becoming more like Christ. But Christ, when he views his bride, right? think, think about the, the young man, you know, it's the day of the wedding. How's he viewing his bride, right? I mean, joy, excitement, thrill. Looking forward to life with his wife. That's how Christ is. There's joy. There's excitement. He sees his bride, and he is pleased. So what, as we're working through the book of Colossians, what can this book help us with in our walk with the Lord? What can it do for us? Well, look back in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This book, as it filtrates into your heart and soul, as you walk it out, this book can, can bring you into the presence of God. This is the vision that I hope we have. If you have been raised with Christ, okay, and if you're saying yes, then the next part applies to you. Think, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So what are we supposed to do? Set your minds, verse 2, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We're back to the grace and the peace, right? God gives us the grace, and with it comes the peace. And if we have the grace and the peace, then we can walk in the presence of God. We can have God with us each step of the way. You know, our theme for the past 12 months has been run the race. Run the race. Coming from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. So how has your race been going? Over the past 12 months, that's been the recurring theme. Run the race, run the race, run the race. Run the race. So you, you, you think back 12 months, so you're coming up last year on Halloween and Thanksgiving and Christmas, and many th different things have happened to us. Some great things, some sad things in the past 12 months. But where are we at now? Are we running better than when we did 12 months ago? Because what we're running is the race of life. And one day, every day, one, day every one of us is going to finish that race. Right? Let's make sure as we come up to that finish line that we're, we're running strong. Now, I think most of you know I, was, I, I am a runner and I ran in high school. <clears throat> and it was always uh, my goal after the first mile, you ran a 5K, so 3.1 miles, but after the first mile, to never be passed again. I mean, I had different goals within each race, but that was one of my goals, was to not be passed. But then my second one was, I would usually go to the, 
to the finish line, and then I'd go, I don't know, maybe um, an eighth of a mile, maybe even a quarter of a mile out from that line, and I'd find like some, you know, something uh, that would remind me, hey, when I hit this point in the race, like the race is almost done. You know, you're just an eighth of a mile, a quarter of a mile, I can, you can see the finish line. Then once I hit that, like I'm just going into like a flat out sprint with as best you possibly can after you've already been running really fast for three miles, that last tenth, I'm just going all out. Because guess what? Once I finish the race, all the energy in the world, what does it do me in the race? Nothing, right? Whatever energy I got left once I finished the race doesn't help me in the race anymore. So I might as well expend it while I'm running. <clears throat> so my second goal was to pass as many possible people in that last tenth of a mile that I could. Why? Because what, what is the normal, you know, the normal race? is uh, you, you know, the first mile, if, if you're not a good runner, the first mile is really fast, and then the second mile is kind of fast, and the third mile you're just like, oh, you burned out the first two miles. All right? <clears throat> so guys are getting slower. Girls are getting slower as they come up on that finish line. I'm going I'm to tear right past you, pick up a few extra spots, right? Well, here's the thing. Here's the application for us, right? Like we are in a race, and we're running it. And <clears throat> it doesn't matter how fast we started. Let's finish well. Let us finish this race well. And you know what? That finish line might be really close for some of us. We don't even know it. Others, the Lord shows us just by, by the proxy of our age that, hey, we're, we're creeping up on it. Regardless, we will all cross that line someday. And let's make sure that we are running quite well. Why? Not, not, just, not, 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 not for our own sake, not for accolades or anything like that. Though it does say we're running, run to win, Right? Run to win. Run to win. What do, we, what do we run for? We're really running for that, that wreath that Paul talks about. It's really the crown of life, which is what? It's the salvation that we have in Christ. Is it already ours? Yes. But while we're here, we can impact the kingdom. We can be belonging. We can be flourishing, and we can be going and making a difference for the kingdom. If you haven't been running that great the last 12 months, well, guess what? Get your shoes on and lace them up and start running. And some of you, maybe you've tripped up a little bit. That's right. I mean, Proverbs says the righteous man falls how many times? Seven times. But what does he do? He gets back up. All right? It's a tough thing. If you've ever fallen when you're running, that don't feel good. All right? You're usually bruised and scraped and bleeding from somewhere. <clears throat> but in the midst of the race, you just kind of have to make do, and you get back up, and you keep running. So if you've fallen down, the thing I love about that Proverbs verse is it's the righteous they get back up. And who's getting them back up? Our Savior Jesus. We can fall and fall and fall, and God in his infinite mercy is always there to pick us up, dust us off, encourage us, and, and send us back in that race. So let's make sure we're a part of the race and we're running it faithfully for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone here. I pray for those, Lord, that don't know you. You'd be gracious to save them. Let them have that grace. And then comes the peace. Let them have that, Lord, by your Son.
through faith, that they would trust in Jesus today and be saved. And I pray for the believers here, for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would, we would truly belong and flourish and go. That we would be in that race that you've placed us and be running it completely for you, sold out for you, on fire for you, running a blaze for you because we want to be more like you. We want to be used by you. And we pray, God, that you would glorify yourself in our lives. You have, you are. We ask you to continue to keep doing so. May we put our hand to the plow and not look back for your glory.